0: Hi, everyone, it's Casper here. We've got some fabulous live shows coming up that we hope you'll be able to join us for. We're in Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 2nd, Washington, D.C. on November 7th, Chicago, Illinois, where my uncle was born, on November 21st, and St. Louis on December 19th. We hope to see you there. Proud, said Harry. Are you mad? All those times I could have died and I didn't manage it, they'll be furious. And together, they walk back through the gateway to the Muggle world.
1: I'm Hermione Granger.
0: And I'm Ron Weasley.
1: And we're in love on Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
0: I'm not in love with you yet because I'm still 12.
1: So, Casper, this is the last episode of Season Slash Series 2.
0: Say it ain't so.
1: (laughs) But it is. I'm excited. We're going to move on, hopefully, to Prisoner of Azkaban.
0: Which is a great story.
1: It is a great story. But what did you think? How are you feeling about this book now that you're putting it to a close?
0: You know, I said coming in that this was one of my top three, and I feel that that was definitely affirmed. I'm particularly struck by how Ginny really emerged for me as we read it this season. So I'm excited to dig into that in a minute.
1: Yeah. It's... It's a much bleaker book than I think I thought.
0: So that's why you love it.
1: I, that's why I've grown to like it better, because it's actually sadder than I thought it was. <laughs> At first, I was like, that's one of the cute ones. That's not true. There are no. no cute books in this series.
0: Before we dig into that, let's do our mammoth task of a 30-second recap of the entire book. Are you Ready?
1: Yes, and I'll go first so that you can watch what the winner of the 30-second recap challenge looks like when she does that.
0: It's true. You won this round also. Listeners, we're going to have to, like, do something. Maybe I need coaching. I don't know, but it's getting embarrassing.
1: No, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about it.
0: All right, well, show me how. You ready? Sure. Three, two, one, go.
1: Harry is having a really hard time at the Dursleys, but then he goes to the Weasleys and then he goes to Hogwarts. Dobby gets introduced during that whole thing. Then they all get to Hogwarts and it turns out that the Chamber of Secrets has been opened and that there's the heir of Slytherin and everybody has to be scared. People are getting petrified. Ginny is acting really weird. Hagrid gets arrested because it's fun. And then, then Ron and Harry go down into the depths of the school with Gilderoy Lockhart and they save Ginny and Fox. And it turns out that Harry's a Gryffindor because he chooses the things. And there's a big feast at the end
0: i mean 29 seconds 81 milliseconds
1: whoa that is pretty accurate casper are you ready to add some color
0: yeah i'll just get my watercolors out
1: (laughs) wonderful on your mark get set go
0: Really, this whole book is a sort of collage of colour. You know, we start with Gilderoy wearing periwinkle, then it's a raspberry red, then we sort of have a deep midnight purple, then a flourishing gold. There's a mint green in there somewhere. I can't remember if that's on the Quidditch pitch or in the classroom. But then, you know, we get a turquoise, we get a rose. um, And then when he wants to escape, he wants to run away. He's got a lovely sort of brown travelling coat, which really kind of contrasts with the stark red of forks that we see in the headmaster's room. And uh, he leaves us having forgotten in his memory
1: do you think that he's lost his sense of fashion though
0: no that is always enduring
1: right (laughs) beautiful job beautiful job so casper something impressive that i think we do is we spend a lot of time not talking about harry potter
0: i know i feel like it could be read as a vendetta let's (laughs) fix that right
1: now yes so let's um i was wondering as we have finished this book what you think about Harry. Are there any like big transitions that you see him going through? Has he grown at all? Like, what is Harry about in Chamber of Secrets?
0: You know, what we talked about at the end of season one was this sense that Harry goes through his biggest transition in book one, right? He discovers that he's a wizard. He has a whole new world that opens up to him. And yet here in book two, I think he also undergoes a big transition in really discovering more about who he is, particularly the bits about him that he might not like. The parallel with Voldemort, with the young Tom Riddle, the fact that he's a parcel mouth, right? There's these echoes of Voldemort's life that are very unsettling for Harry. And I, I think that's important to track throughout the books So his comfort level with this inner darker side. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that we see that we've talked quite a bit about the sorting hat and Harry's relationship to sorting. But I think it's important to harp on one more time here because it's the last time that Harry has sort of an identity crisis about Slytherin versus Gryffindor. For the rest of the books, he's like, I am a Gryffindor. And I think that the sort of Gryffindor appearing to him validates that for him. And Dumbledore's speech of it's your choices that makes you who you are. And that all sort of works for Harry for the rest of the books. But I think that in this book, we still see that identity problem happening of like, I don't know if I really belong here.
0: Oh, this is cool. This is very cool, because I think in book one, we see him enter the wizarding world. And now in book two, we see him entering his Gryffindor identity in its fullness. There's a second layer of belonging now. That's beautiful.
1: It is beautiful, and I think it's wonderful. And what do we wish more for children than, like, a strong sense of self and a strong sense of identity? And I'm happy for Harry that he has this strong sense of identity. No one deserves it more than him, and we all deserve that. We all deserve a sense of we know where we come from, we know where we can go home to. There's that really beautiful cliche that I actually like a lot that is you have to have roots in order to have wings. But I just wonder also— you know, there's just always some loss associated with that. And so I'm wondering what Harry is giving up. At the end of book two, I think he is. He's a cemented Gryffindor. And I'm wondering what is lost in that. I'm not sure it's anything that makes it not worth it, but I'm just wondering if there are things. You always lose something when you start something new.
0: Well, I think what you're illustrating, Vanessa, is actually something that's consistent with book one. You know, we talked about how Harry's still very isolated in some ways. He really thinks that it's his task alone, or he's not yet reaching out to build the kind of alliances that we'll see later with Dumbledore's army. And I think that's still true here, you know, that whether it's about destiny, or whether it's about fear of vulnerability, I I don't know. But I think that's a consistent thing. We're not seeing that change yet. Harry is still really thinking about himself, maybe one or two friends, but it's really the Harry Potter show still at this point.
1: I think that that's something he struggles with throughout. And I think that only some of it can be chalked up to introversion. I mean, like, there is some sort of primal wound that Harry does not trust others
0: Well, that's why I love having Gilderoy as the defense of the dark arts teacher in book two, because Gilderoy is really a mirror of that, right? Like the unhealthy, fully realized, selfish, self-involved, non-trusting adult that Harry could become. And I think in some ways, perhaps that the answering of the fan mail kind of reveals the emptiness behind the mask, you know, of someone like Gilderoy Lockhart. This illusion of a self-made man who does everything himself and defeats all these monsters. Well, we know at the end that there's a whole series of people's stories that have been washed away by those memory charms. And I, I think that maybe this opens the door in Harry to start thinking about collaboration and trust and, and needing people in a way that he's still really just at the beginning of learning about here.
1: It at minimum warns him about the emptiness of fame, that being adored but from afar and being loved are two totally different things.
0: Right, Gilderoy's is tweeting at 3 a.m.
1: Right, there's real vapidity to men who love to just like tell their own stories, right, and be their own PR agent. Something that our mentor, Stephanie Paulsell, has said to us is if you're telling a story, never make yourself the hero in it. And I think that there's something deeply ethical and theological in that, because I think that it's a perfectly healthy psychological place to be where you're the hero of your own story. But then as soon as you're talking to somebody else, start to process the fact that you are not the hero of any story. Nobody does anything alone, right? And this myth around, I yeah, I hadn't seen that before. Lockhart is a warning against the myth of the self-made man, that anybody who says, well, I worked hard and other people didn't, they are missing all of the people around them that actually helped them.
0: At the very least, you drove here on a road that was paid for by other taxpayers, right?
1: Like, come on. But here's my question, Casper. Was Lockhart having the time of his life throughout this book where he gets to sort of like perform in front of all these kids? And I don't know if this was the best stage of his life or I can imagine that this was incredibly stressful for him cuz I can't imagine having touted so many lies and then having to live in such close quarters with an audience and with teachers and I feel like this must have been terrible for him in a lot of ways.
0: That is a great question because Lockhart's kind of narrative arc in this book is the classic tragedy. At the beginning, we learn about his fatal flaw and we see how that over and over again leads to his downfall. Literally, he falls down, right? And I think you're exactly right that he is used to stealing a story putting it in a book, maybe giving a talk, right? Like at the bookshop and then disappearing. There is no accountability to an audience every time he wows people with his latest adventure with a werewolf. But here it's a captive audience that starts to see through The facade that he's offering, right, that it's the same classes every time, they see that he can't handle the pixies and they don't trust him again. The staff here over and over again, his boasts. But when it's time to actually do something like mend Harry's arm, he fails. And so all of the trust that a distant audience might have in him at Hogwarts is gone. And so by the time that he's running away, I think he has reached that like low point, exactly as you're saying You know, in some ways from that very low moment, I don't know where he would have gone. Like if he'd run away, there's enough truth tellers out there now that his reputation would be ruined.
1: I think that there's this like Shakespearean tragedy element very intentionally I mean, the thing Dumbledore says to him is, fallen on your own sword, have you? Right. Which is straight from Julius Caesar. And I think there's this sense that like he is a performer in Shakespearean tragedy and all he wants in the world is an audience. But as soon as he gets it, it just fails spectacularly in front of him. There's something really epically tragic about Gilderoy Lockhart. Do you think it's just – I mean it has to be, right? He was about to attack these two children with a memory charm and it rebounds. Like anything that rebounds like that is justice, right?
0: I don't think that tragedy is ever just. I mean it it can be satisfying but it feels more vengeful than fair.
1: Except – OK. So I agree with you. But let me play devil's advocate. He did it. He threw this memory charm. I mean – I guess the best case scenario would be that he like throws the memory charm and it hits nothing. But at minimum, it's better than it hitting the boys.
0: For sure. For sure. And I'm not sure I trust the wizard justice system in any way to like deal with something like this. So, Which, by the way, brings me to the point that I think Lockhart also illustrates, which is – You know, we've seen this with Quirrell, and we're seeing it again with Lockhart, which you can't trust people in authority. Like, Harry and and the team are learning that clear. Like, it wasn't a one-off, right? This whole theory of, like, oh, it's just bad apples. No, there is, like, an institutional problem. Like, it's a systemic problem of hiring bad teachers, and it's not limited to Hogwarts, right? We see this beginning with Cornelius Fudge, right? Like, there's this growing sense that the institutions which surround Harry's life cannot be trusted,
1: Yes. But here's my question about that. I think that that's absolutely true in the ministry and in other places. But what complicates that with the position of the defense against the dark arts is the fact that we find out later that the position is cursed by Voldemort. So I think that the argument that's actually being made is that any evil has further reaches than we could ever guess, right? Voldemort curses the position because he wishes he could have it. I don't think that he would have guessed that the way that that curse is going to work out is going to be on such a micro level. But I think we see that with laws, right? Like if an unjust law is implemented, which is sort of what a curse is, it's an unjust law that's being implemented on people, then the fallout of that law has repercussions for generations after, even if it's reversed.
0: Yeah. But, you know, regardless of the realities, I think how it feels for these 13-year-olds is going to influence how they think about institutions for the rest of their time at Hogwarts. Well, and what is interesting is that Dumbledore leaves here, right? This is the first absence of Dumbledore. And Harry shows this immense loyalty to an individual. So that I don't, I don't want to paint too stark a picture. Like there's still this loyalty that that yields rewards, right? Forks and the sword and the sorting hat. I guess what we're seeing is a complication of the assumptions that, you know, as an 11-year-old coming to a boarding school that you might have, that everything is going to be okay, everything's in order. Here we see through the terror that is reigned on Hogwarts throughout this book, the systems that would make everything appear okay fail. And it's the personal relationships that Harry is invested in that help him make it through.
1: That just feels like one of the m- most real and salient points of the novels is I'm somebody who wants to be thinking a lot about when to follow rules and when to break rules. And I guess as a default, I want to live in a world in which I want to follow all the rules. And I aspire to make rules that are fair for everyone. And there's social contracts that we're all following and there are laws that we're all following because these are fair and equitable laws. And so one, we have to recognize when those rules and laws aren't fair and equitable and aren't getting us to where we need to be. They're not getting us to the right places. And then we have to be breaking the right rules at the right moments in order to fulfill small things while also trying to change the rules. It's a lot for a 12-year-old to have to do slash sometimes it feels a little overwhelming to me. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Quip. Harry Potter and the Sacred Text listeners, I don't want to scare you, but three members of the Not Sorry Productions team have recently lost a tooth. Now, none of this was because of bad brushing. It was because of accidents that happened. But I am concerned about people who love Harry Potter and their teeth. Quip's Electric Toothbrush can help you in your routine of keeping your teeth and why it's perfect for getting back into a routine after the summer. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to getquip.com slash Potter right now, you can get your first refill pack for free. That's your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash Potter. My brother and sister-in-law have a fig tree, and it makes me sad because I live 3,000 miles away from the fig tree, And I love figs. I think they are like proof of a higher being. Now, I resent them less because due to Fleur's amazing Hanami scent, I get to smell like the fig tree. They make stunning, non-toxic perfumes and they list all of their ingredients online. You get a good scent made with clean ingredients. And the sample process is just good old fun. Go to Fleur.com slash Harry Potter today to check out our curated sample set and get 20% off of your first custom Fleur sample set. That's P-H-L-U-R dot com slash Harry Potter to get your first three Fleur fragrance samples at 20% off. Fleur.com slash Harry Potter. Casper, something that I would like for us to talk about just a little bit more is petrification throughout this book. hmm So to be petrified by something is to be scared frozen, right? It's to be scared stiff. And it's Hermione. It's Mrs. Norris. It's Percy's Ravenclaw girlfriend, Penelope Penelope Clearwater. Clearwater. I know. Anyway, it's Justin Finch Fletchley and our boy Colin Creevy, right? Like this is a lot of people who – have been scared, frozen, are in comas.
0: I don't want to forget Nearly Headless Nick.
1: And Nearly Headless Nick. Thank you. Sorry. Yeah. No, It's he, he was on my list. Yes. So, I mean, like, there's a profound trauma that happens there. And then they're absent, right? They're cordoned off to the hospital wing and they are put behind curtains. And yet their absence is this, like, very strong presence throughout the novel and that is often how we talk about how theologians talk about God, that it is in their absence that you feel its presence. And there's a great line that I'm going to misquote from the Marilyn Robinson novel, Housekeeping, where the idea is that you can feel someone's hand stroking your hair most in the second that they lift it. And that felt very true for me when I was reading that description. And I wonder, I think that this is the point in the novels in which, certainly in which Justin Finch-Fletchley matters most to me. What do you make of these characters who are so present to us in their absence in this book?
0: This is such an interesting line of inquiry. You're right that the via negativa is the kind of Christian language around this, it's its not about trying to find the thing that is God, but it's about stripping away all the excess things that aren't God. So in one way, yes, we do see more of these characters in the fact that they've been attacked and are put in the hospital. But I think in some way, this is maybe a little controversial, but we're kind of stripping away the excess characters of the book to really come close to the core of the story, which I think is about Ginny and the fact that she is the one who is taken, she's not petrified, right? It's not that outer layer, like that snake skin that the basilisk leaves behind. She is the core, and everything is leading up to her being taken. I don't know, that's maybe saying exactly the opposite of what you were, but I think that's how I read that gradual stripping away of characters from the cast.
1: I think that that's exactly right, that both matter, that in order to feel the hand Stroking your hair once it lifts, the hand has to have stroked the hair, right? Like, there has to be a presence in order for the absence to allow you to feel the presence, right? Like, these two are very interwoven. But I feel like there's an overarching theme of this book of gone but not forgotten. But what matters is about Ginny, it's the thing itself, the like object at the center of this is what matters most.
0: Well, and the inverse of that, right, Gone But Not Forgotten, is also the ghost of Voldemort, is Riddle's diary. It's a sort of an inversion of God, right? Like it's this corrupting, evil, innocent looking. And so often we think about evil as being like the devil with little horns. And you're like, that is hilarious, not scary. What's scary is the everyday little choices that tempt us to do things which we know are not right. And I feel like that's what the diary symbolizes, that this presence of evil is also there. Because if we're really going to take good seriously, I think we have to engage this question of evil.
1: Yeah. And that leads me to just like the one last thing that I would like for us to talk about, which is the very strong argument that I think this book is making about the connection between liberation and enslavement. So very strongly – We see Dobby is freed at the end of this book, right? Like this is an enslaved character who we see get freed. Ginny is enslaved and we see her try to liberate herself in secret. It doesn't really work. And then with the help of other people, she is able to be freed. We see Harry exist in an imprisoned state and with the Weasleys' help, he gets freed Hagrid goes to jail and gets freed. There is a lot of imprisonment and freedom. Aragog is imprisoned in a cupboard and he gets sort of freed by being in the forest, not quite where he belongs. And I think there's the argument of like if you've truly been enslaved, you're never totally free because Harry has to go back to the Dursleys. Ginny is carrying around this trauma. Hagrid carried around this false accusation for 50 years Aragog is not where he belongs by living in the forest. You know, like, you always carry that around with you. But I think the final argument of the novel might be that you have to be free in order to help free others. So it's only because Harry gets out of the Dursleys that he can free Dobby at the end.
0: And it's only because Dobby is freed that he can then rescue, you know, Luna and everyone else in book seven. This is interesting. So you're saying that the experience of liberation empowers or allows us to imagine getting out of other imprisoned states. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. There's an argument to be made that you have to have been enslaved in order to recognize enslavement in others, that maybe it is because Harry has been enslaved by the Dursleys, that he recognizes Dobby as enslaved and thinks to free him.
0: Well, I think even more interesting is how does Dobby know that a different world is possible? Like, I wonder what experience Dobby has seen, maybe in Malfoy Manor, maybe just out from his own reading or the history of house elves. Who knows? But like, that's really enlivening to me, because it's the same as when you see... Someone in history or someone who's like you or just a model of what you could become. It's such a powerful influence on the sense of I can do that too. And I think, you know, in some ways, that's what the whole story with Ron and Harry is about. Yes, Harry is the chosen one. But Ron would never have gone on these series of adventures on his own. But because he's like, oh, my mate Harry's doing it. And like, he's my friend. So... I'm going to do it too. I don't know. There's something very empowering in that. Like, I can play Quidditch.
1: Oh, absolutely. The amount of courage that I get from other people, I'm not sure what the difference is between, like, courage and codependence sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, I think that the more that I think about it, the more I think Dobby might be sort of, like, the original hero of these texts. If Voldemort is, like, evil embodied, Dobby is goodness embodied in these books in a way that is less complicated than Dumbledore or Harry. There's just pure goodness in Dobby.
0: But does goodness have to be so annoying?
1: No, it doesn't. It doesn't.
0: Vanessa, I was listening back to the last review of book one that we did. And I realized we'd both chosen a sparklet from the book. We were already doing Florilegia without even knowing that it was a practice. So just to remind ourselves, Florilegia is this wonderful ancient practice of finding little pieces, whether it's a quote or a word from the text, that really sparkles in some way, and to put it next to other sparklets, as it were, and to see what can we learn about each of those words, those pieces of the text in relationship with one another. So this book review, we have again picked sparklets that really to us speak about something that we think the whole book is about. Like, is there something that stands out from the whole book? So Vanessa, what did you choose as your sparklet from book two?
1: My sparklet is, you don't care about Ginny, said Ron, whose ears were reddening now. You're just worried I'm going to mess up your chances of being head boy.
0: Mine is, you will find that I will only have truly left this school when none here are loyal to me.
1: Ooh, Casper. I mean, it's a beautiful quote. It's one of the most famous quotes. Why did you pick it, though?
0: I think what I like about it is that it speaks both to the depth of commitment that we see from Dumbledore, in this case, to the school, to Harry, to the mission that he's chosen, but also this total lack of clarity about what the hell that means. And I think... So much we see our heroes and heroines in these texts commit to good, commit to friendship and and service, and trying to help the world. But it is so complicated to try and figure out how to do that. And frankly, the people that we look to for guidance can't always tell us. But there's something I think that strikes me about that in this book, where you know the mission is becoming ever clearer. Right, that first Horcrux has been destroyed without knowing that it's a Horcrux at this point, but. The mission has been chosen in some way, and yet the path ahead is so complicated.
1: I love that point, and I hadn't thought about that. But I think we do that to leaders. I think that we ascribe more clarity onto them than they had, certainly in the moment, certainly on a day-to-day, in a certain meeting moment.
0: How about you? What Can you give us your sentence just one more time, and what did you choose it for?
1: So I picked, you don't care about Ginny, said Ron, whose ears were reddening now. You're just worried I'm gonna mess up your chances of being head boy. So, this is when Ginny is really upset, and everybody thinks it's because Mrs. Norris has been petrified. And Percy comes and starts yelling at Harry and Ron because they're sneaking in and out of Moaning Myrtle's toilet. And he is like, Ron, you better start behaving. Ginny is upset that you're misbehaving. Mom's going to be upset that you're misbehaving. And Ron says, you know, is calling Percy on this. He's saying, like, you're just trying to be a kiss up and a tattletale. But what's interesting to me about this is that there's just so much going on in it. And Ginny is at the center of it. They know that something is wrong with Ginny. They know that Ginny is upset. The evidence is all here. Two brothers are talking about the fact that their sister is upset. But Percy is thinking about becoming head boy. Ron is thinking about polyjuice potion. Everybody's thinking about something else. And so they're really not seeing past the end of their noses. And that's so much of what this whole book is about, is about like us not noticing Jenny.
0: I mean, that's the question we asked in the trailer for this season, right? Who in our lives are we not listening to? I guess I'm moving into the next stage of, of putting these two quotes in relationship to one another, but both are about you know, the multiplicity of stories. In our hand, we hold this one text, which deems to tell us one story. And yet the further we dig into these characters and the complexities of the situations that they're in, the more we realize that, first of all, each character has their own narrative arc and different story that's going on. But each character has multiple stories. Like life is one big messy pool of story. We're just like swimming in a water of story and it's everywhere. And to try and make a linear nice arc of it is always a construction. And sometimes these stories are necessary. We have to construct them in a certain way just in order to make sense of our experience. So the idea of Dumbledore always being there, right? The all-knowing, all-wise, all-generous figure helps these children feel safe and sleep at night. We're going to find out that that is not always true, right? And that is a crushing reality when they realize it. And here are these two wonderful Weasley brothers who are missing a story that is so important that's right in front of them that would open up their world, would deepen their relationship, would stop their sister from getting kidnapped, and they can't see it.
1: Right. Right. I mean, what I love about both of the quotes that we picked is that there's so much good intention, right? Like Dumbledore is trying to say something comforting. And and one thing you cannot accuse the Weasleys of is not caring, right? Like this is a family that cares about one another. And yet everybody is still somehow like missing the mark. And so to me, it's like good intentions and caring and love. It's all hard. It's hard to love someone well. It's hard to see someone clearly. These are pursuits that are worth practicing. They're a lifelong pursuit.
0: Vanessa, I feel like there's something more in this comparison. Like what else is in this relationship between these two sentences?
1: Well, this isn't exactly between the two sentences, but it's in seeing the sentence that you've plucked out of context. What I'm realizing is if I look at the quote, you will only truly find that I have left the school when no one here is loyal to me, and I didn't know that Dumbledore had said it, I could very easily think that Voldemort has said it as a threat and that it's true he has found his way 50 years later. There's still someone loyal to him in the school of Lucius Malfoy, who's like on the board of directors. And so as long as some sort of connection to this bad intention is coming back, evil is going to persist.
0: Well, and I mean, this is huge because just think about the symbols of evil that still are alive, you know. And for some people, the Confederate flag is that kind of symbol of slavery and oppression. And its physical presence is a re-embodiment of all of those memories.
1: It's Riddle's diary.
0: Right. And so Bree Newsome, right, in taking down that flag a couple of years ago, that was a Horcrux moment. And – I'm just thinking about the conversation we had about absence and how here is like a forced presence of something that should be absent. I don't know. like
1: Yeah, there, I mean, there can be real power in absence, right? Going up to the South Carolina State Capitol Building and not seeing the Confederate flag, that is beautiful. Seeing the absence of that is incredibly empowering. So the like urgent question is, Everything that we've inherited is somehow sullied by someone who's been loyal to something evil. So, like, what do we do with these institutions? What do we do with these inherited spaces? Even Hogwarts, like, has the best leader it's ever had and is full of mostly good teachers with good intentions. Even Hogwarts has this, like, evil thrown in. So what do we do with these institutions?
0: You know what? I think we have to talk to the ghosts. I really think this is where Myrtle is so important like seek out the stories of the people at the margins in history yeah like lift up the moaning myrtles like you know she's still there she's waiting to tell people what she knows but no one has asked her and I think that's why the quote that I picked relates to the one that you had because Ginny is today's moaning myrtle and that's why we've missed this whole secret the whole time thank god we got there in time
1: So who are the ghosts of the moment, I think, is the question that we have to be asking ourselves. Who are the voices at the margins who are not hearing? I mean, and this does. It accidentally, serendipitously goes back to the first question that we started with. Who is your Ginny Weasley? Who is the invisible person in your life who you are not hearing? And go and seek that person.
0: Vanessa, it's time to do a Herculean task. And find one person from the pages of this book who we want to give a blessing to. Who are you blessing today?
1: I'm cheating. I'm going to bless our two invisible women from this book, Hermione and Ginny. I couldn't choose. Hermione is petrified. Ginny is in a basement. And I just think that this is how women feel in boardrooms. This is how women feel when they're competing for athletic scholarships. That they have to just shout louder and jump higher and behave better, wear higher heels than everybody else, and that still they are silenced and invisible. And so this blessing isn't just for the women who feel that way, but for people all over the world who feel as though they have been petrified into silence, their voices have been taken from them. And this project hopefully is one in which we are trying to lift your voices. And my blessing is for you. Casper, who would you like to bless this week?
0: My blessing is for Professor Sprout. Without her, the petrified victims would be petrified. And she does this very generous thing of raising a greenhouse full of teenagers in order to give people back the voice that they have had taken from them. And she doesn't star in these pages. She's not Lockhartian in her desire for fame. In fact, it feels like she's, she's hiding from the spotlight. She's practical and she's generous. And I would be glad to be compared to her one day. So blessing for you, Madam Sprout.
1: Casper, I would like to offer one more blessing this week. What is it? My blessing is for you and your beautiful husband, who threw the most fun event last week. You all threw a Sound of Music sing-along in order to raise money for two fantastic organizations.
0: Well, it was only amazing because you and Rory and Ariana were all there. But yes, we did. and. I have to say this was a really fun way to like bring people together, to sing together, watch an amazing movie, which stands the test of time. Holy moly. And we and we raised, yeah, we raised like over $2,000 in the end for the International Rescue Committee that supports refugees around the world and for COSECHA, which is an immigrant justice movement based here in Boston.
1: And I just want to say I had so much fun singing along with you and, and then like geeking out for a long time after about Sound of Music with you all. That I thought that I wanted to bring it up here because I think this is something our listeners can do. I think it might be particularly fun if some of our listeners, through parties in which you watch a movie like Order of the Phoenix together and talk about oppression and ways of rebelling and resistance. And, you know, all Casper did was say, like, donate money on your phone. And what else did you do? You had people write down.
0: It was really fun because people would donate on their phone and then they would write down on a piece of paper and just put that on a little pile how much they gave. And then I counted up all the different pieces of paper and we made our own little totalizer board with like a thermometer, you know, and the money kept growing. And so it was really exciting. As the evening went on, you could just see the little red line going up and up and up until we hit our goal. And I think, I know for myself, I wouldn't have been as generous as I was if I hadn't been there with other people also being generous. So I feel like it was a good way to help me be the kind of person that I want to be.
1: And so we're going to put up just a special little blog post on our website about how Casper did it with some like tools and ideas for how you can do this for yourself. But most importantly, if you do it, please email us, tweet us photos like we will publicize that you did this, how much money you raised, which organizations you raised it for, what you did, what Harry Potter themed things you did. And we're just, yeah, we would love to invite you to join this super dorky, super fun thing we did last weekend.
0: Thanks, Vanessa. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, the last episode of season two. Please join us on our crowdfunding campaign at harrypottersacredtext.com. Every donation will help us meet our two goals of $30,000 and a 1,000 individual donations. And please subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram.
1: This episode was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turk and me, Vanessa Zoltan. Our social media coordinator is Jen Stark. Our music is by Ivan Paizow and Nick Boll. And Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is part of the Panoply Network. You'll find ours and other great podcasts at panoply.fm. This week, we would like to give a special thanks to Julia Argy, Rebecca and Charlie Ludley, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you for all of your support in the crowdfunder. Please keep it going. And this season has been an absolute blast. So thank you.
0: Thank you, everyone.
1: I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
0: And I'm Casper Turkile.
1: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
0: Do you sometimes hear your own name and think, that's so weird? (laughs) Yeah. Just like what a weird collection of sounds that <laughs> that's what I identify with.
1: I think that daily about the word counter counter. I'm like, that's such why is it called like that? like a, like a counter. A counter?
0: I'm Joseph Fink, and I'd like to introduce you to I Only Listen to the Mountain Goats, a podcast about the shifting line between artist and fan. When I was a child, reading the authors that I loved and listening to the music that I loved, the thing I got from that is that feeling of of being understood somehow, and that weird connection, where it's not the person, it's not the stranger, it's the thing they've made that opens this space for self-reflection. I only listen to The Mountain Goats. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.